Welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. We created this community for students and for industry to join together as a community and talk sports and really it just be what's going on, what is the future looking like, and have a little bit of fun. Welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. I'm Prof Walls. We have our spotlight speaker, Nigel Dakra, and we have uh, John Pallet and Amy Staparchik from the Toronto Wolf Pack. So really excited to be talking about rugby tonight. So welcome, Nigel. Welcome, John. Welcome, Amy. The way the show is, we will ask a series of questions. You've got a, the topics in front of you. Uh, we like to interact with some of the students as well. So if the students have any questions, please feel free to join in on the chat. Also, if you want to come off mute, you're welcome to do so. And we'll talk about a few fun things. And as well, tonight, it does look like we've got one or two serious topics relating to transgender items, uh, issues in world rugby. And some questions even perhaps many of you can answer because I was reading what's going on with Rugby Canada and I read their first language, their terminology, and I could not decipher exactly what they meant by it. So I'm going to be looking for all of us to be weighing in on that. But first I would like to just talk to Nigel because Nigel, you've got quite the resume and uh, from athlete to Hall of Famer to coacher and now also the founder of misfits and it looks like you're still you've been coaching as well and coaching ontario and coaching canada so yep. uh the love of rugby started at age four is that something that happens in over on that side of the world uh yeah definitely um without a doubt and maybe john can also attest to that from from his i can hear his accent as well um so without a doubt um yeah rugby was instilled with me at a very early age my parents are both from new zealand so I really didn't have a choice in terms of how, uh, what sport to play. It was rugby or, or nothing. <laughs> um, mm. Aussie rules football uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't part of the equation. Having said that, I did play other sports. You know, I was a multi-sport guy. I played cricket and I played tennis, Ooh. golf. You know, so I think um, you know, rugby wasn't the only thing, but certainly in the winter time, yeah, I had to pull the boots on and, uh, and play rugby. <laughs> so, but you ended up at other parts around the world playing rugby, Ireland, uh, you know, this, how, how did you get, go from, um, I'll say down under over to, to Ireland? How did that mm. happen? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of, a, I'll give you the short story. So I moved from Melbourne where I was raised, um, to Sydney to pursue rugby and played rugby at a, at a high level in Sydney uh, in the mid nineties. And then, um, you know, just had itchy feet with regards to opportunities around the world. And, um, in that time, you know, 96, 95, 96, there wasn't a lot of professional uh, rugby going on. Rugby officially went professional in 90, this rugby union went professional in, in 1996. Um, I was looking at opportunities in, in parts of the world like Portugal and Spain, uh, England, uh, also Japan and Hong Kong. And I was offered an opportunity to play semi-professional rugby in Hong Kong. So I moved up there in late 96. And uh, yeah, had an opportunity to get my first taste of professional rugby. Having said that, when I was in Sydney, I did, you know, in those days, playing elite level rugby there meant your rent was paid or you had a rent subsidy or you got you know, some beers after the game, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's a whole different story. If I look back at the clubs I played for, they're all professional now. So I'm, I missed my 
window, you know, just based on my age. But yeah, then from Hong Kong, uh, playing for Hong Kong and playing semi-professionally for a club there and also working and then moved uh, onwards to um, the UK, uh, to, well, specifically Northern Ireland and played rugby there professionally for a couple of years um, before moving to New York um, to be with my wife, my, my, my then girlfriend and had an opportunity to play rugby union in, in the US and also rugby league. Uh, just a shout out to John and Amy. I also played um, rugby league for the New York Knights and, and also played international rugby league for the US Tomahawks and played a few test matches for the US Tomahawks and toured Australia with that team as well. So um, had a taste for both rugby league and rugby union. Um, and then back to Hong Kong in 2002, baby, baby in hand and, uh, and played once again, played semi-professional rugby in, in Hong Kong for the national team and for my club. Um, but all the while, you know, at that point, my career working as well. So I had to balance both and a young family. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the long and the short of it. Um, one thing, of course, you know, rugby for me, all, you know, again, like I said earlier, certainly a professional environment now for the clubs that I played for. And those guys are all getting paid a lot more money than I was getting paid in those days. But the, you know, the key principles of rugby, you know, is really what I hold dear uh, now and the, the lessons learned and the people met and the connections made probably more important than the, the money that I, that I was given uh, for playing, for playing, playing my trade in, in those, in those clubs. So, you know, very fortunate to be exposed to different cultures and different people around the world. Um, and also, and rugby was the vehicle, which, uh, which I think is really unique. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I find interesting because rugby is, and, and John and Amy, maybe you could comment on this, is that we've seen rugby explode over the, you know, the past decade or so. And however, it's still a sport that is in, well, at least in North America, uh, and we're hearing some other parts of the world just from Nigel's experience where it's evolving. It's really progressing and it's evolving. And it's becoming more mainstream. And uh, from, let's talk about pre-COVID, before we get to, to COVID and what's going on and how that's um, impacting the economy of sport in Canada and also just the economy of sport globally. But as you said, Nigel, you're almost too early for the big growth spurt that uh, rugby had. So just maybe comment on where you are seeing uh, rugby today and where do you think it's going? And, and I wanted like to, if we could maybe talk about that pre-COVID. Sure. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I think it's important if we, if we think about the Canadian context, um, there's a few really key pivotal moments in, in the development and the of rugby uh, in specifically in Canada. Um, one of which of course is the Canada sevens, which is held every year um, in Vancouver, you know, incredible uh, opportunity to see high level international rugby um, over 70,000 people over the weekend, like a real party atmosphere and people from all over Canada fly there all over the North America, all over the world actually fly there to, to be part of that, um, that event. And that's really helped grow the grassroots and the engagement of rugby in, in, uh, in Canada. Uh, the second would be the women's team winning bronze at the, at the Rio Olympics in 2016. Uh, that, I mean, we saw a huge spike in the participation rates of, of female athletes within rugby, somewhere in the region of around 25 to 30% uh, spike in, in registrations alone on the, on the girls' side. And that was really, really important. And now we're seeing, you know, again, 
to bring the Wolfpack into the discussion, we're seeing um, another level of engagement through Wolfpack and also through the Toronto Arrows, which is a full professional outfit here in Toronto. And with the Arrows, we get, uh, in fact, my son was doing it on the weekend, a, a pathway and engagement with the junior level teams. Um, and they're really investing a lot to try and ensure that the grassroots and pathways are there. So I think the Toronto Arrows and the Wolfpack are really important parts of development of rugby, specifically in Canada. And in, in the wider North American context, you have the MLR, which the Arrows play, play in, which is the Major League Rugby. Mm -hmm. And there's expansion teams now in LA and Dallas, I think now from memory around 12 or 13 teams in that league, uh, independently owned organizations, independently run, which I think is a really exciting um, aspect of rugby in North America. And it's great, I think, to have a, a professional team in rugby union here in Toronto is one of the most important uh, uh, milestones for rugby development in, in Canada. Amy, and what are your thoughts? Because you've, you've actually been, I mean, you've been involved in the Wolfpacks for many years now, and you're adamant, this is the place that I'm going to start to build my career in. So how have you seen it also grow in, in Canada in particular? Um, and of course, I know that your league is, is much broader than that. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I've been involved with the Wolfpack since 2017. Um, when we pitched, Samantha and I pitched to you guys about doing our practicum on the inaugural season. Um, and it has just, it's been crazy. I mean, we were, we were surprised when we first walked into Lamport Stadium and there were thousands of people there that had likely never seen a rugby league game, um, maybe a rugby game, but the rugby league not common in Canada um, prior to the Wolfpack at all. I actually, I played rugby union, but I didn't even know there were two, two variations of the game. Um, and what we've been able to do at the Wolfpack in three short years, um, both on the field and off the field, more importantly, um, I think in this discussion off the field has been um, nothing short of incredible. Uh, we had two years in a row, we had nearly 10,000 people pack Lamport Stadium on a cold October um, afternoon. <laughs> And the first time we, we failed to gain promotion to the Super League, but the second time we did accomplish that and hearing 10,000 fans cheering on this team for a, and in a league that they had never probably heard of within the last couple, like before the last couple of years mm -hmm. for a sport that they weren't familiar with. Um, the dedication and commitment that we've seen from those fans to come back week in, week out um, has been really, really cool really cool to see and um, hopefully we are sparking participation levels as well and we're getting more people involved um, from the grassroots level and that's ultimately the goal for Toronto Wolfpack. So John uh, the importance of and uh, Amy I really like what you're saying about the participation so as the Wolfpack gains more audiences uh, gains followers the fan engagement that also uh, over time is going to increase the number of participations uh, in, in our country. So that's a, that's a huge part of participation from the grass level to the professional level. And John, I know that from the commercial side, the operations side, and this is something that you're focusing a lot on is to make sure that you're really engaging with the fan base and capitalizing on the overall popularity and growth of rugby in our country. Yeah, I think really the, 
The reason the Wolfpack worked well in Toronto is, is all down to scheduling now. We would ordinarily play 14 home games in a season. We give the first three home games, whichever three games they are. We play those in the UK because we can't get into Lamport until uh, probably early April at the earliest. But what we've been able to do is kind of create a, an event on a summer's day. Um, and Rugby League in the UK actually... It was running into a lot of problems historically going up against Premier League football and, and lower league football. I mean, the UK has got 120 professional soccer teams. Um, so it switched to summer. Um, and I think for Wolfpack, even if you had an indoor stadium, I don't think you'd want to be promoting against the Leafs or the Raptors. And if you're in the US, I don't think you'd want to be promoting against the NFL either. And I think the MLR have done this as well. My understanding is their season's been knocked back a couple of months for COVID. Uh, now, they may well end up continuing with that schedule year on year, albeit they play in the southern states, which get hot. But I think if you've got an ambition to grow the sport and you need to get casual fans in to grow the sport, uh, you want to be playing in the middle of the summer and you want to be able to have an event. Um, you know, the Wolfpack is a, a five-hour event. Uh, the Arrows actually use our game day director. They use our um, uh, event service company. They use our beer garden provider. They're going down the same route. And I think if you've got the ability to pull in casual fans and give them a taste of the game, which is, you know, you have a party and a game of rugby breaks out, I think that's, that's been key for us. And I think that will be key for the Arrows and the MLR, like I say, and coupled with the fact that you don't necessarily want to be trying to launch a, you know, relatively niche and new sport in a town that's NFL teams about to make the playoffs. So, yeah, certainly it works for the Wolfpack. And I think it's going to work for all of the MLR as well moving forward. Well, th this, this, is, this goes into the next conversation, which is the state of rugby in Canada right now, because, I don't know, in June 13th or so, we had Pinball Clemens from the Toronto Argos on the show, and we were talking about the state of football and the importance of being able to play the game, uh, you know, and, 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 and there wasn't very much positive outlook, and now the CFL is, has basically said, we're not going to have a season. So this this is... The economy is being from a sport, well, the economy in general, but from a sport perspective is being battered. It's being hit hard. Canada, uh, the no national sport organizations are being hit hard. And so, and because people, kids cannot play, right? They're, it's not, they, they cannot play right now to the extent that they were before. The funding is not there. The ticket sales are not there. Merchandise sales are not there. It's being negatively impacted. So two things. The question that I want to ask is, the state of rugby in Canada now, post-COVID, six months into COVID, where are we and where are we going to go? And obviously, this is going to depend on uh, if there's another resurgence. But just in general, where are we going and how are we going to continue to save it and fund it? Uh, Nigel. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a hell of a year for um, <laughs> a lack of rugby. Yeah, without a doubt, this year has really torn the heart out of... Um, rugby union in, uh, in, in Canada, everything's been canceled. You know, every season's been canceled, you know, during lockdown, you know, there was no training going on. We're now in a, in a process of return to play, uh, which is, has some pretty strict protocols around, um, contact and distancing. So we're, we're in a, in the midst of, of, uh, of that return to play protocol. We, we wouldn't expect, um, even the most optimistic wouldn't expect, uh, games to be played until 2021. So, you know, of course, and with weather, 
and other sport, et cetera, you know, it may be in, it may be not be until spring of 2021. So, so we're in, we're in a bit of a, a, a bit of a hole right now. And as you, as you correctly mentioned, you know, there's a knock on effect with not just sponsors, uh, but also club registrations and clubs are really suffering right now because they've got rent to pay, they've got grounds to upkeep, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. Um, so there's a big push now in the grassroots to ensure that you, you know, join, rejoin your club, uh, pay your dues uh, just to get some money in the coffers. Um, so it's a real challenge right now. Um, but I, I do see some light at the end of the tunnel. As I mentioned, you know, my son was involved in the Arrows Academy uh, combine yes, yesterday um, up at, in Whitby. So the, and that's an athletic combine similar to what they would do with, um, you know, college, et cetera. Um, so there's, a, there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but it's, it's certainly been something which has been hard to, uh, to stomach uh, throughout COVID. Of course, it's necessary and we've got to do what's right. But it's it, post-COVID, what the landscape looks like may be very different. Will we see less players and a, a smaller player base? Quite likely. Will we see sponsors, you know, recalibrating their money and looking elsewhere to other sports, you know, possibly? So it's going to be a very different um, rugby that we, we emerge into in 2021. But I hope that, you know, there's the core base is still there and we can, we can come through stronger as, and, and back to what we were before. Certainly, you know, from my perspective, from a misfit perspective, and we've, we've been engaging our athletes and our members to, to rethink about their involvement in rugby. So we developed our own player board and we've had been challenging some of these athletes to now take a more of an admin role since they can't play. We want them to flex their intellectual muscles and we've developed that player board, which is engaging our, and setting a direction for our club for the future. Um, so I think clubs are, are starting to understand that, you know, uh, engaging their members and players is very important through this period. Uh, but yeah, to your question, it's going to be, um, we're all excited about the future and, and coming through this, how rugby looks uh, as we come out is, is going to be a very interesting um, thing to see. John, what, to, what do you think the role and, and to the extent that you're able to answer, so feel free uh, to let me know, but what is the role of the government in all of this? I know that they, as an example, have, they turned down the CFL for any funding and said, you know, you're all small businesses, figure it out. Unfortunately, we need to take care of different things, like making sure people have money to pay rent and food. Um, as an example, so I know a lot of sports right now are hurting, especially some of the, let's say, uh, not any of the big four. And the big four are hurting as well, but let's just say those ones where they're, the deep pockets aren't as deep right now, like a Hockey Canada or even a Basketball Canada for that matter. Where, where do you see the government play a role and how, what is, what is the message to sponsors and to fans to, to ensure the future of the Wolfpack? Well, I think for me, broadly speaking, and um, I, I think the Wolfpack are caught in, in the middle, which is why we ended up not fulfilling our season when our league continued their season. But broadly speaking, if you've got the NBA, you've got sufficient TV money and sufficient sponsor money that gets significant exposure from the TV to, to fund going into a bubble. Now, a bubble was, was very expensive. The NHL also have that. And then you've got baseball and NFL. If you look at the CFL, you look at Major League Rugby and you look at junior hockey, 
what you have there is the decision to return to play is almost made for them by their accountant because they can look at how much money do we make on tickets, how much money do we make on merchandise on a game day, on beer revenue and on sponsors that are directly linked to game day. And if all that money's gone and your TV deal and your big sponsors that gain exposure from a TV deal, if that doesn't pay your players, you put your hands up to the government and you say, my players and my staff are no different to the theatre that hasn't been open for seven months. They're no different to the tourist attraction that hasn't been open, the, the restaurant that you closed for four months. So you take the government handouts. And that's a difficult decision for the CFL to lose momentum because it's a six-month season, which means you won't have had a CFL game for 18 months at the earliest when they start. But I can understand why the government did that. In the UK, rugby league was propped up for five months. Every rugby league player in the Super League was an unemployed staff member at a business that couldn't trade for COVID. And that helped prop the league up, as did the TV money and some of the sponsor revenue. But, but the teams in the UK are hurting and actually... As I said before, because there's such a significant number of soccer teams that no one on this call would ever have heard of but play in small towns but still exist as professional clubs, they are all lobbying the government because the government has... They've had to step back on a plan to allow stadiums to get to 30% capacity by October 1st, which would have been this week. Mm -hmm. So now what's, what I think will happen here is what's happening in the UK, which is the sports teams that are going to struggle to continue employing their players and staff to play in empty stadiums are going to the government and saying, what specifically have you got for our industry? Because the airlines are struggling and the hospitality industry is struggling and sport is struggling. Um, but yeah, I can fully understand how I almost think Major League Rugby would have been more affected by this in three or four years time than they are now. I think it would have been a, and I speak to Bill Webb at the Arrows, uh, you know, every few weeks for catch-ups. Um, but I think their decision came quickly and it came easily because they did the maths and they realised the teams could ride a year of not playing. But moving into next year, I think if you if you have the CFL with no fans, I I don't know how they're going to make it through without the government propping propping them up. Mm -hmm. So that's not the only issue that we're seeing right now in rugby. And I want to talk about this. And Joe, please feel free to jump in. I'm going to tee this up this way. I did read, uh, I, I don't understand this sentence. So if anyone can explain it to me, this has everything to do with the transgender guidelines in world rugby. And just for everyone's uh, knowledge, the world rugby is the world, world's governing body for rugby. And they have come out with a policy or at least to consider banning transgender women athletes. And so, Joe, before I get into uh, what's going on in out sports and the, the scholars, the 88 scholars that did sign a petition on this, basically uh, how Rugby Canada. So Rugby Canada put a statement onto their website and it started off as saying this, said, uh, the trans transgender guidelines are not policy that can or will be adopted should they move forward. So I want to bring that down at some point. I'm like, there's, there's two negatives there. So you're not a policy that can or will be adopted. Right now, it is a draft guidelines. So I've had an opportunity to work with the Sport Lawn Strategy Group, and they're the ones that worked with them and Chris Mosier, 
so the, um, an advocate for transgender athletes and also a big part of the creative inclusion environment for trans participation in Canadian sport in the original report that was that came out on this. So anyway, uh, there is a lot going on right now because what the World Rugby, Rugby Organization is arguing is the, as follows. At least 20 to 30 percent greater risk of injury when a cisgendered player, and a cisgender player is somebody who identifies as the gender that they were when at the, um, as, that was assigned to them at birth by someone who has gone through male puberty. So um, basically they do talk about, the, and also the World Rugby Organization is also following within what's going on in the IOC. So there's a lot of different debates on this. The, the competitive advantage is a big one, specifically with trans women. Uh, that being that they were a male before they transitioned to a female and saying that they are going, the potential of injuring somebody in a game is 20% to 30% higher. Scholars around the world show evidence to say that this is not the case and this still needs to be debated and that this is a, more of a human rights issue. So, um, and, and just one more thing to add to create the context and then Joe and Nigel have you jump in. So the other thing too is, is, is also about identifying as a male or a female. So when we take a look at our dear friend and guest, Harrison Brown, who is a professional hockey player, played in the women's league, identified and came out as identifying that he is a male, he was still able to play. The moment that he decided to do hormones or the moment that he decided to make any sort of actual physical or physiological transition from a female to a male, is when he could no longer play. So, um, so the policies are, are very interesting and highly debated. So Joe, where does this stand in terms of a human rights issue, but also the fact that the Canadian, Can Rugby Canada's first statement is that they're, they're, they've made guidelines that looks to me that as though it's being progressive, but they've not put the stake in the sand. Joe? Well, I mean, from what I read, I thought that they had, um, which made me feel good about being a Canadian again. Um, the reason that I even was uh, made aware of this was a, a, a researcher scholar, Noah Reisman, who sent an open letter around, around the world actually to um, universities and scholars and researchers about this and wanting them to uh, sign this open letter. And so I did, uh, I, I, I'm one of the 84 people. And it was that with the knowledge that this would go anywhere and it ended up in outsports, it's ended up in other publications, it's, it's, it's fine. Like, it's, so we're supporting this saying that we don't agree with this ban and that it is discriminatory. And there was a lot of fl flies in the ointment of, of World Rugby's position on it. Um, uh, these, it was non-peer reviewed, it was, it was kind of slipshod and there's like these 20 to 30% more injuries and like it just a lot of it was not was not really thought through and it still seemed to be at least from my from my standpoint it seemed to be based in discrimination more than in science and more than in facts and um, I just thought it was kind of interesting because uh, I, I'm also a huge film and documentary fan and I, it's always kind of interesting to me that rugby, which is a con, you know, not a big four sport, 
it's it's a big international sport in Australia, New Zealand. Um, it's not, it isn't hugely known here in North America, but a couple of my favorite films, a feature film and a, and a documentary film revolve around rugby. And so like Invictus, which told the story of when the World Cup came to South Africa, and that was about race relations. And then a documentary I saw a couple of years ago called The Australian Dream, which was about Adam Goods and, and his fight for, you know, indigenous rights. And so it always seems kind of interesting to me that like all these kinds of diversity issues are being played out in the sport of rugby that we always think we should be seeing more in the big four sports and we actually don't. Um, so I don't know, I'm, I'm wondering for people who are so heavily invested in the sport of rugby, what, what would you say about that, about why we have such huge stories coming out about diversity issues and that somehow gets this lightning rod to, to the sport of rugby. Nigel? Yeah, sure. I think, um, yeah, all, all valid points. Um, I'd start off by saying, first of all, I disagree, Joe. Rugby is played in every country in the world. Uh, I don't think NFL is. You know, So the big four um, is the big four here in North America, but rugby is played in pretty much yeah, every country. I, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I'm coming from a very North American perspective. Okay. So, so let's look at it from a global perspective. Yeah. Rugby from one, from one aspect, uh, certainly from my experience, and I think that John and Amy would agree, um, is one of the most, if not the most inclusive sport on the planet. Um, look at it, just look at it from a sporting perspective. Look at it as a sport. We want the big athlete. We want the tall athlete. We, we don't mind if you're, if you're a little bit chubby because you're a very important part of the team, right? If you're short, you're a scrum half. So there's a, there's a place in rugby for all different body types and you're valued and you're cherished and you're, and you're nurtured because we need you. Um, it's also a very low cost sport. To, to play rugby, you need a pair of cleats, you need a mouth guard. So there's no prohibitive cost factor. So rugby is incredibly inclusive. Now, if you look at it from a uh, wider context, bring in LGBTQ, uh, it's grown exponentially over the last few years. And uh, the, if, if the um, Bingham Cup, which is the mm -hmm. um, gay and inclusive rugby tournament, which happens every four years, was meant to be in Ottawa this year. Unfortunately, COVID um, canceled that. Um, there was going to be upwards of 80 teams from 20 countries. 80 gay and inclusive teams coming to Canada to play rugby. So I think there's, I, I, I disagree that we're not inclusive. Um, I think we're incredibly inclusive. Um, rugby Canada I, are I'm taking not saying a, you're not inclusive. I'm actually not saying that. I'm saying that it's kind of interesting that these stories get played out around okay. the sport of rugby. Yep. And they never yep. see them being played out around other sports necessarily. Okay. Yeah, again, maybe it, maybe it is the global nature of the sport and the fact that we are inclusive that um, allows those stories to be told. Um, and I think there's some really interesting stories uh, amongst all those. Um, you know, and, and I think the trans side of it, Rugby Canada, just to, just to talk to specifically to that point, uh, Rugby Canada have definitely, as you said, John, I agree with you, they have put a line in the sand. Um, they've come out and, and, yeah, the language may not be clear, but certainly um, their stance is, in, is opposed to the World Rugby Ban. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I, I think that is the correct direction. Again, from somebody who believes that, uh, that rugby is inclusive and it should be maintained as an inclusive sport. Um, to, to also just to throw something out there, um, 
maybe we shouldn't be looking this looking at this as a transgender issue um, with regards to banning athletes. It should be more of a physique uh, um, aspect. So, and a safety issue. So, why is it, for example, in New Zealand, if you look at that, the most concentrated uh, rugby population on the planet, the age grade rugby in New Zealand is based upon your weight. Mm-hmm. So if you're a certain weight, you play in a certain team and you play in a certain league yeah. um, because they're concerned about safety. And there's a lot of Polynesian, big Polynesian kids who develop very early. Um, so there's been a lot of talk on this exact subject with, the tr- with trans involved, meaning let's not look at it from a transgender perspective. Let's look at it from a, um, from a, a physique and, and, then, and then make the decision based upon, based upon that and safety. And then it, make, it could be an easier discussion. Um, but I, I, do, I do agree, just to cap that off, I do agree with Rugby Canada. I don't necessarily agree with, with World Rugby, although I can see their point. You know, I've got a daughter who played rugby, but um, I'm all for more people playing rugby and enjoying all the benefits which I've uh, had uh, throughout my career. Why would I want to exclude anybody from I th- what I think is the most wonderful sport on the planet? You know, everybody's welcome. So what you're saying is actually quite interesting about the, about the weight classes, because so many sports, you know, already have that, have already that implemented in things like boxing, weightlifting, wrestling, like it's all about your weight classes and that you should, that's what makes you equitable. So, you know, why has this maybe not been more of an issue to like talk about that, about maybe it's also not just rugby, it's going to be other sports as more and more transgender athletes start appearing in these sports. Yeah, indeed. So maybe it is about weight classes. And, and I think that that's a, it's, a, it's an interesting point. Unfortunately, unfortunately here in North America, we don't have the, the, the player base, certainly here in Canada, have a player base um, which is uh, uh, robust enough to allow us to have different weight divisions within the female side of rugby. Yes, there's a lot of players uh, in New Zealand, you know, you, they have the they can afford to have different leagues and, and uh, divisions based on weight. So it would be difficult to do that here based on just the pure numbers of, of players. But, but I do think that the safety needs to, needs to be a concern. I also think that the safety well-being of the athletes, both, both LGBTQ and regular athletes, um, or excuse me, you know, regular community athletes should be looked at holistically as well. Um, you know, not just the safety on the field, but their inclusion uh, off the field and how they feel. So there's a lot of aspects to, to be looked at there. Um, but again, just to reiterate, I think, you know, Rugby Canada have, have, have put, and, that, and that's got a lot of global eyes on rugby in Canada because they've taken a stand. Um, and I think that's a really good thing for Rugby Canada. Uh, they've got a history of, of supporting uh, that community and I think it should continue. Chelsea, I see you want to chime in here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I found it, I'm finding it very interesting listening to the different perspectives, and I thought it was also interesting to note how, kind of Joe's point, where we kind of look at the big four sports as, we always look at things, sport, I think, from a North American perspective, and we forget about that global perspective, and I think that's an important thing to note. And one of the articles that uh, Joe had sent uh, me when I was looking up on this issue was one of the one of the researchers and former athletes had basically made the statement of saying that I can accept you who you are off the track, but on the track we have a different set of rules. And she couldn't believe that she could stand on that double standard. 
And I feel like that double standard's not seem right to me. Like if you're going to say that you accept, then you can't have these separate set of rules when it's convenient for, for you in other ways. And if to me, the way I look at it is if these different organizations are willing to have these policies in place, then you're, to me, that says you don't accept, you, you don't see that double standard. And that's not a very good message, I don't think. John Pallet, do you have a comment to Chelsea's or to Nigel's? Well, I, I think, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a great debate we're having and you're stealing all my ideas, all of you who've gone before. But I think um, when I first saw this, I did, my, my instant reaction would have been at the outside of the very top level, if we're talking about inclusion, I think Canada certainly is, is um, a wonderful place to live for all backgrounds, ethnicities, and, and, and rugby is certainly the perfect sport. So I think if anyone is going to trailblaze this, it's going to be rugby and it's going to be somewhere like Canada. I think we, we mentioned the big four. I imagine some of those sports have shot this debate down before it's even started. And that's why it's, it's, it's kind of coming up now through rugby and then with obviously Rugby Canada going against what World Rugby is saying. I would need to see more of the evidence on the injury risk at 20 to 30 percent. A slight question mark on saying, well, outside of the top level, rugby is all about inclusion and diversity and, and being welcoming to everybody. So I'm not sure, as you identified, I'm not sure what that research was and, and you know, how would we adapt the rules to say, well, can we work around that? Can we limit the risk in other ways? Um, but, I, but I certainly, I think what I would say is the IOC seem to have everything under their umbrella at the moment. They've obviously got rugby sevens. They've got um, a football tournament at the Olympics now, albeit it's for under 23s. I think really all sport across the world is looking at them because they are the ones that are going to have 10 to 15 of these to, to deal with in 2021 in Tokyo. So I, I would almost say at the very top professional level, what are the IOC saying relative to the Olympic sevens? John, I want to argue this with you because I, uh, and now just for everyone knows this, but Joe, I don't even know how many 10, 11, 12, 13 Olympics that he's worked on. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the camp that the IOC needs a massive overhaul, just an absolute massive overhaul on every element of every part of the IOC, including, including, sorry, Joe, I know. Uh, and, but it, it just is this, this, I know it falls in line with this. However, they're, they are so non-progressive on so many fronts and it scares me that we that and I don't think you're saying this but we can't rely on the IOC to be the one that's driving this change it needs to come I think from the grassroots level and by the way the Rugby Canada and and I've said this before about the the national sport organizations and I said this to the Minister of Sport when I was on the board of the, the Canadian Women's Hockey League, which was there is not equity. <coughs> national sport organizations or Ontario sport organizations and if we think that transgender um, athletes have that that were equitable. The answer is I'm sorry, but we're not and we're not even close. We're not equitable when it comes to gender. And we're not equitable when it comes to transgender. I mean, if we were to take a look at, and I actually don't know this for this show, I should have had this information, um, but I, I know that the amount of money that is going towards male sports and female sports is inequitable. 
um, you know, the participation, even the ice times or the, uh, the pitch times or, you know, whatever the field times are completely different for boys than girls. And it just is like we go on and on and on and on about the inequity. So it worries me and I'm glad that we're having this conversation and I'm so happy about the 84 scholars that did come forward and talk about, um, you know, sign this, this, this letter to say, we're not standing for this. So I agree with you, John, in the sense of, I don't know where their research came about the 20 to 30% greater risk of injury came into play, because again, there's a lot of scholars around the world that are saying, hold on, we actually have evidence based uh, research to show you that we disagree with that. So I, I think that in always when you're looking from an academic standpoint, it's good to have multiple different perspectives. And I know even in a business standpoint, that is the case too. Um, are we, uh, you know, to, to and, and Nigel, and, and I see here Axel is also looking at intersectionalities, wants to know, um, Nigel, to weigh in on the topic of race inclusion as well. Um, in, in particular, I believe that you've got experience with the Iroquois rugby. So um, I want to just, I want to talk about the equity because I, I, I get, I, I would say transgender um, is one that, that, that continues to need the conversation. So maybe I misread Rugby Canada's note, but I don't understand their first sentence. And I, one thing I did like what they said is that that this that Rugby Canada does can make its own decision, right? So if the if yeah. the World Rugby doesn't make the decision, they can actually make a decision, which sounds like they're doing. But it's still draft guidelines, and I'd like to see a policy. Joe, are you want to jump in or Nigel? Yeah, that, um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, when I read that Rugby Canada, I, I wasn't confused on it. I, I thought they made it clear that they were not supporting uh, this ban and they were going to go their own way, which again, that's why I said like <laughs> things that Canada does are always, uh, you know, always makes me feel glad that I'm Canadian. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when you talk earlier, just go, to, go back to the IOC question is, no, we should never be looking to the IOC to be the progressive one about anything in, <laughs> about sport, gender equity, LGBTQ rights race, any of those, the IOC is not going to be. It's got a history of, of doing, being on the wrong side of history. I mean, we only have to go back as recent as, as uh, 2014 uh, Sochi. It's like, here's an Olympics held in a country that openly defies you know, LGBTQ rights. And that's why that became a big issue around that. And that's where like our friend and athlete Anastasia Buxis and Canadian athletes that actually stood up and, and defied that. And it's and has become a ripple because people aren't gonna stand for that anymore. But when the IOC awards uh, the, the Olympic rights to certain countries, it's based on money. Let's, we know that it's not about improving uh, world peace or uh, you know, advancing the rights of anybody. That's not, it's about money. And as long as you're attaching solely money to things, you're actually never really going to be on the right side of history. Nigel? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would, I would definitely agree with that for sure. Um, yeah, not a lot more to add, but um, yeah, I, I think that Joe's on the money with, with his comment for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a bigger picture there. And I think that it's, I mean, first of all, it's great that Rugby Canada put a line in the sand, as we said earlier. Um, World Rugby did give uh, countries the ability to make their own decisions based on this. So there, it was indeed a guideline, um, but ultimately 
uh, each territory or union could make their own determination based upon their their own specific country, and Rugby Canada have done that. You know, I, and I and I do think just again to put it into context, we are talking about a very very small part of of rugby. Um, you know, and it's but it is a part, and we have to address it, and we have to ensure that we're the health and safety of all players um, is is definitely looked at and include and and that inclusion piece is. Is, is robust to ensure that we, have, we, we continue to have more players uh, coming into the sport. So let's, um, I would, you know, we would love to, I'd love to go on this topic for a very long time. And I'm saying this again, and I'm gonna say, I'm gonna have to coin a term, I think, is that we've, we should just make one topic each week <laughs> because we could go on for one hour on this. And, but let's jump into something a little bit more, uh, light here for a moment and and Axel is going to be taking over for Dan Berlin Dan the coach Berlin which is the rapid fire so let me give you the instructions for the rapid fire rapid fire is coach Dan Berlin's uh, segment each week and uh, Axel as I said Leo Menes is going to be taking over for Dan and Dan is going to be looking at this afterwards Axel so good luck you he will ask you a series of questions you can answer ideally with one word answers sometimes you can't answer in one word it might take a sentence or a paragraph but he will cut you off if you go into a very long story so fast furious think about what you want to say we're going to be going back and forth with the video between axel and you so we can capture this axel leal manis over to you with rapid fire Hey guys, um, so what, how I've done this is I've, uh, I've split things up into some questions for Nigel and then some um, uh, you know, questions for other guests. And uh, yeah, I, I am feeling the pressure, um, you know, with, with, with Dan not here. So, um, you know, hope, hopefully he'll, he'll be a little generous with his criticism. Um, but, um, you know, let, let's, let's keep it light. Um, let's keep it um, fun. So, uh, Nigel, what, one of the questions I have, the first question I have for you is what's What's the biggest stereotype you found about Canadians since you've uh, settled in on, on, on this side of the uh, world? I know you married a Canadian, but what, what have you realized as being a stereotype? I've got to be very careful here. Um, <laughs> you're always apologizing. Gotcha. Uh, what, what sport would you have seen yourself playing if you were born in uh, Canada, not Melbourne, Australia? Baseball, 100%. And who was your sports idol growing up? Whew. David Campisi. Uh, and uh, you have to you have to pick one. Of, you have to pick one of these: player, coach, or founder. You can only be one of those. Which one? Coach. Uh, so, segueing off of that uh, answer, what what have you found has been the best part of coaching? Why why do you find it so fulfilling? I think seeing the development, well, I'll, I'll be quick, seeing the development of athletes um, and seeing them go from point A to point B with their development. And uh, I find that incredibly satisfying. Uh, how about the hardest position to teach in rugby? Uh, outside, we'll, outside center, I think is the that's, hardest position. Yeah. Hardest uh, position 15s, I imagine, right? Uh, yeah. that, that's your answer for 15s. What, would, would it be different for sevens? Uh, center, I would think would be also center in sevens, only one center in sevens. That would be the hardest position to, yeah, defense. It's all based around defense. Yeah. Uh, how about, um, what's your take on the biggest obstacle to developing rugby in North America? 
well, getting players out of the big four and focusing on a new sport such as rugby is the biggest challenge. So player adoption. Okay, we're, we're almost there. You're doing great. Uh, what's your favorite memory of your trip to last year's World uh, Rugby World Cup in Japan? Singing the Australian national anthem uh, with my son uh, at the stadium before the England Wallaby game. Unfortunately, we lost, but that was a very incredible moment for me and my son. Yeah. Okay, and, and th this this is probably the, one of the toughest uh, questions of the round. Favorite pub? Since I imagine you've uh, you've seen a few as a rugby player coach. Favorite pub? Yes. Wow. Favorite pub? Probably the Dickens Bar in Hong Kong uh, under the Excelsior Hotel. Excelsior Hotel, yeah, um, is probably my favorite. Yeah, many a night spent down there uh, telling tall stories. Yeah, we, we all know how important uh, sharing a beer after a game is for, for both, both sides, both teams. Um, and then uh, one little gaming gaming question, but time, timely given you know where where we are in the year and the approaching holiday season, uh, Xbox uh, Series X or PlayStation Five? Xbox, hundred percent, yeah, definitely. All right, good, good. Uh, you may have got a passing grade on that. I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll check. You too. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so so this this is a message for. Um, uh, for sorry, this is a question for for John. Uh, what's what's been your biggest challenge building the Wolfpack brand in Toronto? Uh, I think mean, I think the biggest challenge is is getting the word out there in in the early years. Um, and I think you have to be very creative about how you find groups of people that you can subtly give tickets to without the people that are buying tickets finding out. Gotcha. Uh, Amy, how about you? What's been your biggest challenge building building that franchise of yours? Um, I would say the biggest challenge has been that the fans don't grow up with the rugby IQ, or at least they haven't up until this point. So trying to, um, from a social media perspective, trying to explain what happened in the game, but you're you're not trying to explain it to half of our followers, which are in the UK or in Australia, New Zealand, and know what you're talking about. Um, but you do want to, there is a certain level of education that we're responsible for, um, for our Canadian fans so that they learn the game and they enjoy the game more. Sorry, that's long. Okay, you actually may have also answered the next question with that answer. And it was more, what, what makes a Wolfpack fan different from any other sports teams fans in this city? I think, um, a Wolfpack fan specifically, I think it just goes into the game day experience. Everyone that has visited the Den, whether from the UK or from Canada, um, is amazed at the game day atmosphere. And after the game, we all hang out in the beer garden and the players will come by and, and shake everybody's hands and we all have a beer. And that's just, that speaks to the sport of rugby. Um, but that's what the fans love so much. And yeah, they're just the dedication to come in week in, week out. We had eight Saturdays in a row last season. Um, and we saw the same people every week. So the fact that they gave up every Saturday in the summer, but they just, but they didn't see it as giving up. They actually really wanted to be there. So yeah, game day experience. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed my, my summers in the stands there. Um, John, what, what's your favorite memory uh, as part of the Wolfpack so far? Uh, I think for me, we we had a mascot suit stolen 
that at some point late in the year at the end of one season and we just decided to have a bit of fun on social media we threw out a kind of missing dog poster and we said our mascot suit had been sold had gone missing uh, we didn't expect to recover it but our game day director who's a, a brilliant mind bought a suit for 150 dollars on amazon and we managed to convince all of our fans across social media all of the media outlets but the 150 dollar kind of spoof, goofy, kind of Gordo the mascot was real. And we actually got a picture of Gordo on the back page of the Toronto Star. And then we unveiled, but actually we bought a new suit. Uh, and Gordo was our mascot until halftime of the home opener. And then Jefferson came out and triumphantly kind of took back the, the mascot crown. So that was probably the most fun we've had. Uh, I was at that game, John, and I was scratching my head thinking, what are they doing with this? <laughs> Wolf with a saxophone. I mean, really, is that going to bring fans in the gate? But so, so you, you had, you had me, you had me. So, that, but that was really well, well done. Um, uh, Amy, uh, what, what does hear us howl mean to you right now? You got that hashtag on Twitter right now. What does that mean to you? Um, I mean, it means everything to me, to be honest. Um, fans are coming out in all corners of the globe using that hashtag and explaining what the wolf pack means to them and why we need it back. Um, I just, I really hope that we will be readmitted to Super League. It comes down to a vote. Um, we've done what we can, but I think reading those stories about, you know, this team that we've had so much fun with and I've had so many great experiences with, um, touching people on, on all corners of the globe is just, it's really cool. So reading through those hashtags and seeing how it's impacted people, it means everything to me. And, and for, the, for those who don't know, the, um, the Wolfpack are, are in a little bit of limbo. They've got new ownership and are looking to get back into the um, welcome back into the Super League. Sounds like they got an extension. Sounds like they got a strong ownership group. I think John Torrey is part of the ownership group. So uh, based on what I was able to uncover. But um, uh, okay, I was told to reinforce the one answer response. I'm going to give you guys one last chance. Okay, John and Amy, one last chance. Uh, you both can each answer this question. What, what do you miss the most about watching games at the Den, a.k.a. Lamport Stadium? John, you go first. Yeah, I think for me, it's, it's whatever halftime show we come up with. We can't compete with the Raptors and the Leafs with their sound system. Oh, and John, business. John, one word. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> no, I think um, yeah, it's, it's whatever wacky halftime show we can come up with to entertain 9,000 people and try and vaguely feel a field with it. Okay, Amy? <laughs> awesome. Uh, for me, it's the atmosphere. It just comes back to that. There's something special about standing in that stadium and seeing full stands and everyone just feels as one. The players will go around, shake everyone's hand. Um, kids are there, adults are there. It's, it's fun for everyone. And the, the game day atmosphere is incredible. Awesome, great, great work guys. Longer than the one word answers, but but we're gonna we're gonna with the bell curve, you guys have passed. Okay, great, great job. <laughs> Thanks, awesome, Axel. Thank you for taking over rapid fire from Coach Dan Berlin. We have three minutes left, and before I pass it over to Chelsea, I did want to ask Nigel one last question here, and actually, hopefully, I think his answers will help. Amy, John, you, and where you're trying to grow rugby. The great news is is that everyone, the three of you, are have a lot in common. So here's the question, Nigel, and, and 
I do need you to stick to a, a minute and a half answer, but I will give you if you can if you can. And uh, John and Amy, you you actually hold the record for the longest answers. I'm very proud. I'll, Dan Dan will like that, Amy. Okay, Nigel, your question. So we've been talking about the evolution and the growth of rugby in Canada, particularly in North America, but in in Canada. And so you saw a tremendous opportunity to create the misfits and to find the misfits, to create the misfits. Why did you, what, obviously you saw the opportunity, what was that opportunity and how can the rest of this country jump on board to think like you're thinking and try to, to grow the game? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. Uh, thanks, Laurel. So, yeah, I think from a from our perspective, and I, I, it's a shame that that uh, Dan's not on this call because I would have loved his input on this. But from a North American perspective, uh, coaching is very coach centric. Uh, it's the coach barking orders. It's the coach. It's his team or her team. Uh, it's certainly evident in basketball and football and baseball, whereas in rugby, it tends to be more of a player centric or player player centric uh, coaching style where we want the, the players to engage. We want the players to buy in. We want the players to set a direction with regards to how we coach and the direction of the team. I wanted to parlay that philosophy into a club environment where the athletes have opportunities to make decisions on, on the future of the club. So that's, that's really how the Misfits began. Um, we, we felt there was, a, there was a gap in the market in Canada for an elite level sevens program uh, in North America. And we, we still firmly believe that, but we stand by the, the principles of having a player driven uh, organization um, and, and empowering the athletes, both male and female uh, of all ages to be part of a, a, a board and set the direction of the club. So, so we, in doing so, we hope that other clubs see what we're doing and start engaging their younger members and have, rather than them being told what to do, they're actually, starting to make decisions on what they feel is the best direction. And it could be as simple as what they do at training. It could be as simple as the design of a jersey. It could be the tournaments they play in, et cetera. Um, but it, once you start engaging and empowering young athletes, they start to really buy in and it becomes more important than the game and more important than the sport. It actually becomes something that's, that they can, um, that that's, it's part of them and their identity. And we've seen that, with the misfits and the players we've engaged with, uh, we've we've been very successful on the field. But for me, the the biggest success has been off the field, and uh, how the players have really reacted and and uh, and basically knocked it out of the park in terms of how their involvement has shaped our our club. So, in in a small way, I hope that rubs off to other organisations, and we we find other teams doing it. Just a quick example, just to finish off. Our marketing team, which is two guys, um, they started a podcast and their podcast is The Rugby Room. You can, you can listen to that on Spotify. Um, and they're out there doing great interviews with, for example, Iroquois, we mentioned earlier, uh, Roots Rugby from the Six Nations and working with uh, to help promote what they're doing in the Six Nations uh, reserves, bringing rugby into, that, into those communities and all the aspects and, and key pillars that rugby represents. And, and so... You can hear those uh, interviews with, uh, within the Rugby Room podcast on Spotify. So I'd welcome you guys to take a look. Yeah, so hopefully that's, I'm, I'm not out of time. So, but, uh, no, awesome. I can't wait to take a look at the pod or listen to the podcast, The mm -hmm. Rugby Room. 
And before we go, I'm going to pass this over to Chelsea Vernhow. However, I do see a chat here. Isabel Rossi is saying, second year sport media student, John, she is more than willing to take one of those free tickets and she promises not to tell anybody. <laughs> All right, Chelsea Vernhout, over to you. So I know you're gonna kill me because you want me to close off, but I'll get there. But I do have a piggyback question because uh, based on what you had just asked. Um, and I would love for Nigel, you to give your answer from like a North American perspective and then for John and Amy, for you guys to specifically narrow in on the Wolfpack. But you guys have already kind of mentioned how because of COVID rugby, is going to look very differently uh, moving forward. And I think it could arguably be thought about in the way that COVID has, has played a major role in essentially halting the progress that you guys have been working and working and working towards. So how much of an opportunity do you see it now to continue building the sport of rugby in light of COVID? What new avenues of promotion, sponsorship, fan engagement, game operations are you guys exploring? Well, I, I'll, I'll quickly talk from my perspective. Yeah, so I mentioned it earlier, you know, we, we began our, our player board uh, really to engage athletes throughout COVID. Um, and I know other clubs have, have been doing various programs to maintain that engagement level with their athletes and their member base. Um, online and social media, um, based activities and challenges, etc. Physical challenges, whatever, whatever it is. Now the rugby clubs in Canada are being very creative to continue their messaging on social media. Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult to remain relevant. Luckily, now with with the um, reopening protocols starting to loosen, and we and touch wood, we're we're on the right path. We're now back on the field training, albeit in a in a modified uh, way. But there was some very dark days there throughout COVID where clubs were scrambling to remain relevant and communicate and reach out to their member base. Uh, yeah. Um, and there were some creative things, some very creative things happening on social media. Um, but from our perspective, we, we took the opportunity to, to recalibrate our board and we had applications flood in from our members and others from right around Canada from out East all the way out to Vancouver and in between. Uh, for people wanting to be part of our board. So we, we found that was very successful. And uh, we're, so we're happy with our engagement. But yeah, it's been a difficult process and we hope to be back on the field very soon. Great, thank you. John and Amy, I'd love to hear your thoughts um, on in terms of the Toronto Wolfpack. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think if we see Toronto Wolfpack return to Toronto next season and we can put on games, um, we will finally see the impact of Sonny Bill Williams and that signing. Um, that is the, one of the biggest names in rugby um, that we signed on for this season. And unfortunately, he never touched down in Toronto. So I think there can be so much done around him to have a global superstar of that level um, and to see the impact that he can actually make over here. John, I don't know if you have more to add. Yeah, I think just very quickly, I used a phrase that I've been using as kind of email sign-offs and things for months, and our head coach started using it last month. He stole it from me in media, but he, he basically says, we just need to make sure that 2021 becomes the year 2020 should have been. We, As Amy says, we'd signed Sonny Bill Williams. We'd made it to the Super League. We would have loved to be competing. We should be playing every four days in the UK now, but financially it just didn't make sense for our previous ownership. We don't get any of the TV money, which is frankly the only reason the league has, has returned to play in empty stadiums. So we were looking at 
losing money to, to return our players to play and, and to compete. But really, we go quiet for six months when we're not here anyway. So although we've had 18 months off, as Amy says, our fans are very loyal. Um, and we create a buzz around our game days and our events. So I think provided we're back, and we would have to have full stadiums, we'd have to have the Ontario government allowing us to get 10,000 in, in Lamport, but I have no doubt that we would sell out the majority of our games next year. And then just lastly, on the community side, Ottawa have got a license. They'll be starting in League One, which is the league we started in in 2017. And we were always looking to do more and more on the community side once the team was established, once our operations and logistics is locked in. So I think if, as long as 2021 is the year 2020 should have been, we have the team, we have full stadiums, we have Sunny, we have the community, and we pair up with Ottawa on the development side and work more and more with the Arrows, which is, which is the direction we were heading in. Um, I don't think we're issues having effectively just missed a year. Um, and I'm sure the... The Arrows probably view it exactly the same as can they make 2021 the year 2020 should have been. Great, thank you. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation and it's always great that we can do an exclusive episode where we're talking about one sport specifically and hopefully our show helps just boost the rugby in Canada and the sport itself as well. So thank you, Nigel, Amy and John for joining us on Sport Talks with Sport Profs. Um, have a great night, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Take care. All the best.